Dear, dear listener, hi, this is John Dupuy. I want to ask a favor of you. If you like the podcast, A Deep Transformation, and you're getting a lot out of it, could you please help us by going to wherever you get your podcasts, it's a Spotify or Apple or wherever it is, and write, write a review. That would really help us to get this out. We really believe in what we're doing, and we're really praying and hoping this is helping people and being part of the solution. So if you could do that, it would be greatly appreciated by Roger, myself, and our team. God bless. Thank you. In part two of our dialogue with the fountain of creative ideas, Zach Stein, Zach explores and explains the information wars raging all around us and trying to pull us into them anytime we open a browser or a social media platform. Part of 21st century safety and sanity now require us to be aware of how everything from social media to Russian trolls to AI bots are constantly fishing for our attention, money, and minds and trying to weaponize us to serve their goals and propaganda. Yet Zach also points out how these same media and AI systems can be used to take education and us to new heights of maturity and well-being and be used to help heal the great social and global challenges of our time. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers contemplatives, and activists with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. Well, Zach, just I just got a real, a really visceral reaction to uh, an insight from something you said that that it's not only the media that are weaponized, that we, to the extent we buy into it, we are weaponized. This is how bad it is. We ourselves become instruments of the very propagandizing process. It's called, in the Consilience paper, we name it, it's it's called horizontal propaganda. There's vertical propaganda. Vertical propaganda is classically what you know as propaganda. It comes from a centralized information authority. It comes down to you through, you know, the Department of Health or whatever. But the horizontal propaganda is when, of your own volition, you are out there spreading propaganda. Yes, yes. Not understanding it. Yes, all the time thinking we're doing doing good. Precisely. And yet we have been we have ourselves been weaponized. Yeah. And I. I, I want to go back to what you, something you said before, Zach, because I was drawing an analogy. You said, well, you pointed to the fact that, well, there's this incredible stream of information, disinformation, et cetera. But and we and so hard to know anything with certainty there, but we can come back to our body, our experience and and our felt sense of, of appropriateness and rightness in our act, actions. And I'm very much reminded of basic meditation practice. Mm-hmm. I think of, you know, <laughs> my early days of meditation and just the 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 incomprehensible swirl and and mix of thoughts and feelings that just pour through the untrained mind of being completely overwhelmed. And just the instruction, just come back to the breath, come back to the body. Yes, you get lost in thought a thousand and one times. But the game is to come back each time to the breath, to the body, and just check in. What's what's your experience, fundamental experience and truth right now? 
It just feels very analogous to what you're pointing to as a one essential element of a response to this information, disinformation, ecosphere we now yeah. live in. Yeah, at the most basic level, it works at, by, and I already mentioned it, it works by dysregulating your, your basic attentional system. So like, uh, what we're talking about here now is what's called algorithmic radicalization, or I sometimes call it algorithmic human development. I write about this in the essay for that perspective of volume. Mm-hmm. And, and let me just mention for those who would like it, I think that's the volume titled on meta- metamodernism. Yeah, the metamodernism one, where I talk about a lot about information warfare and some yeah. of this stuff. But so, yeah, they're, they're really tinkering algorithmically with the base of the brainstem. And so one of the most direct approaches is to go to basic awareness meditation and disrupt the ability of the screen to basically run interference on your sovereign neurological process, right? So the screens are weird. They're actually two dimensions. It's actually a three-dimensional, like this is a thing here I'm staring at, but it creates <laughs> a simulation, right? So like I'm saying, there's a reflective stance that can be taken by someone who has a trained mind as a meditator that can stop the limbic hijacking that the algorithms are attempting to do. This is a hopeful hypothesis, which I think has been confirmed by some people I know and my own experience occasionally. But we better hope that that's the case because we're going to soon be having wearables, right? which means I'm going to have glasses or contact lenses that I put on, which will make it impossible or at least not likely for me to do what I can do now, which is to just put my phone somewhere else. Right? So we're, we're, we're going towards a kind of cyborg type existence this is already people mostly especially younger people can't live without their phone they just can't they don't want it out of reach period which means it's a part of their mind body operating system and a lot of what it is doing is is standing in for knowledge and certain kinds of information so to be able to judiciously yeah, and, and zach can i can i just emphasize a point you're making here which is our information technologies, media technology, is just beginning in its potency. I mean, yeah. soon we can we can see virtual reality coming online. We can see a variety of things coming online, and then there are things we can't even imagine yet, which are, be, are in the offing. And the potency of those things. I mean, we already have people who spend. There's a Japanese term, which I can never remember for, for basically kids who are shut-ins. They never leave their room. They just play mm. social media all day, all day long and into much of the night as well. There's uh, in my uh, psychiatry training now, I just had a continuing education webinar on, on online addiction disorder, you know, and we haven't, and pornography, of course, with the super stimuli of the airbrushed you know, models, et cetera. And and we haven't even begun. So mm-hmm. these topics you're raising are incredibly important because they too will be weaponized and monetized, etc. Here's the thing. Again, propaganda is like the evil twin of education, which means that these same technologies, which could be used and weaponized and made the worst brainwashing machines ever, could also be the most powerful educational technologies that we could possibly imagine. Well, well, Zach, preparing for this conversation today, boom, 
I was there listening to talks you gave, reading things you'd written. Oh, there's a historical figure you you referenced that I didn't know who it was. Boom. Oh, here's a word. What does that really mean? Boom. You know, it's it's amazing, but it's all right there. As you were saying, the educational uh, potential is it's like nothing nothing that's ever been as far as we know. How does that mix with with the like you said the evil twin of super education and super propaganda? Yeah, this is that's what we're looking at. So we're looking at one way to understand what I do is that I'm an educational futurist. Like I I think in a principled way about how education will evolve, and I understand education in a very deep philosophical sense as kind of part of whole civilizational sustainability and recreation. So there's this sense in which I'm looking at educational futures now where the implication of the educational future has implications for a future of governance, future of economies, futures of food systems. It's all related. Like that's how deep my definition of education is. So AI changes everything. So there's a very complex thing that's occurring now, which is the emergence of what we'll just call, for lack of a better term, an AI to AI tutoring systems, right? AI tutoring systems. Right now we have social media things where AI is being used to capture your attention. Like for example, on YouTube, it will give you the next video you should watch. And then that's based on the other videos you've liked. And then eventually all you see is our videos that you kind of like. And so then you're likely to stay on. So we're already sequentially presenting information to people through algorithmic customization based on complex backends of psychometric technology. We already have generative AIs that can create images and texts that appear to be made by humans. We're soon going to have immersive virtual reality environments where you can sit there and talk to Socrates. You like put on your VR headset, you're sitting there. You're talking to Socrates. It's a, it's a beautiful looking rendering of Socrates in ancient Greece and and what is that? It is actually an AI. It's like a GPT-3. I don't know if you guys know this, but GPT-3 is an AI, open generative AI thing where you can feed it all Socrates' texts, everything Plato ever wrote on Socrates. And then you can ask it a question and it will answer in a completely unique way, very convincingly, as Socrates. You can already do this. And if you do it with VR, it impacts the brain more than if you're just looking at a flat screen. Yeah, then, yeah, and then it's, and, and it, so now we just do it, it just generates text, but then it's a quick text to go from text to speech and then text to speech in an embodied VR. So then you have a fully embodied virtual tutoring system, which is running you through a series of conversations with Socrates, and then you're talking to Alexander Hamilton, and then you're talking to, you know, Amiri Baraka, like who, anybody, anyone, you could load up a bunch of texts, poems, you could load anything. So that's, that's coming. And like people, people are working on that. And so that becomes either the amazing, or now we have a widely distributed, what would, what would take technically be called a, an aristocratic tutoring model. And this is how the greatest geniuses and minds ever came up. They always got themselves in a situation to be basically aristocratically tutored. Sometimes they ended up having to tutor themselves, but usually they had teachers, but they got in a situation where they were, it was non-institutionalized, <laughs> very direct one-on-one -on -one customized instruction 
now instead of having 20, 30 kids in the classroom getting a mass customized kind of like modern education, we can get each kid with their own tutor, with their own aristocratic tutor that has the best psychological knowledge possible about them and access to all the world's information. And it puts them together. So that's like a oops. We, <laughs> we just did a bunch of things that, that could go terribly wrong. So it's an exciting scenario. So I just, the scenario I just told you is probably more than I should have said because it's like makes venture capitalists just drool at the mouth and just like saying you're trying to do that is enough to make things move. When in fact, that whole thing is quite dangerous. For one, we run the risk of making human to human teacher-student relationships obsolete. Exactly. Very dangerous. So we run the risk of creating a simulation that's so good that we prefer the simulation to reality in the domain of teacherly authority. And this is where it gets very tricky. Like we'll get there. It's very, it gets very scary. So there's the obvious route where, okay, the Socrates thing and the Thomas Jefferson thing and the George Washington thing. Yeah. We loaded it with their texts, but we also loaded it with our propaganda. Right. So there's that route. There's the obvious that this thing just becomes used as propaganda. So that, I'm going to put that aside. That's like the, that's like the easier problem to solve in some ways. Cause it's so bad. Like who would do that, <laughs> but they'll try to do that. Even if they don't do that. So let's imagine it's a not instrumentalized ideal tutoring system. You will supplant human to human teacher student relationship, which means that you will for the first time in history have a generation that is raised fundamentally socialized by in relation of teacherly authority with a non-human entity, specifically an artificial intelligence. So that is by my definition of what a human is. That generation just went transhuman. That we just ended the species. We created a situation where there was a rift in intergenerational transmission that abruptly had a group of humanoids socialized by silicon, right? And even if it's a small group, it's still a radical historical discontinuity that many people are not that, I don't think, really worried about. I feel like this is very disconcerting. To me, it's like, it's like dropping a bunch of nuclear bombs. Like it changes the dynamic of what the human is very, very fundamentally. So that can be avoided but we can still get the benefits of that if we design it correctly, which is to say you can make an AI tutoring system that adds benefit to and deepens the value of human to human relationships. You can make an AI tutoring system that presents itself in such a way that it does not pretend to be a human, does not pretend to be something that could obsolete your relationship with humans. And it says, hey, I'm a fucking robot. Hi. <laughs> you want to see my code? <laughs> it's super complex. It never tries to pull the whole like, I'm Socrates thing. If it does that, it's an obvious entertainment context. But you have to have educational context where you are in relationship with reality and another human with an AI helping. Not an educational relationship where you are alone with the AI and it creates reality for you. So these are great risks and they're actually in the space of educational philosophy and they have to do with what I mentioned before, the how different digital is as a fundamental communication technology from 
of the electrical, which is like TV and radio and text based. You know, so it's like Marshall McLuhan stack. We've just popped out <laughs> into the digital. And as soon as we get the wearables, which are the glasses and the virtual reality and the augmented reality, we will be positioned to have this rift in intergenerational transmission. If you talk to some parents, they would already say that the phone <laughs> and the computer is running interference on their ability to be a parent, right? That the algorithms are already disrupting normal human socialization patterns fundamentally. That kids' identities, that the things they say are more a result, question mark, of what they get from the computer digital world, algorithm shows it to them, than what they get around the dinner table, let's say, or with their family and important social interactions at school. It's a hypothesis that we may be crossing a threshold. So Zach, yeah, yeah this, is, this is, my gosh, mind-blowing. But I would think also, because of what you're saying, and almost the inevitable flow if we keep going and we don't blow each other up in the meantime, is that an integral consciousness would recognize, and you do this in your talks, and honor and the ancestral wisdom that comes from the native peoples and comes from those teachers that connect us with the earth, that connect us with each other. And it seems we're going to have to, uh, and, and group worship, which connects us with community and sangha and church and body of believers that support each other, that we're going to have to draw on the strength of those evolutionary stages and all the medicine that they brought forward in order not to just become soulless robots. <laughs> yeah, there will be, you know, fingers crossed. It's a weird phrase, but something like a return to the human. So I think about the two analogies. They're not good because they trivialize it, mm. but we'll work with them anyway. One is the bicycle. Like given the prevalence of cars in the like evolutionary emergence of technology, you could see the bicycle disappearing. This is what people have been saying about the book. Right. But the, actually, books are becoming more prevalent. And, and there's a premium placed on nicer books, which are not, uh, you know, which are themselves like standalone artistic. Similar with music and musical performance. Right when music became free and infinitely replicable and digitally transformed, there is now a new premium on live music. Absolutely. It's just a new premium on live music. And so, just as a human, is about to be replaced by the machine. <laughs> There'll be a return of the human. I like that. It's not clear how exactly it will happen. It may already be happening. It could appear as just anti-technology movements, and we're already seeing the growth in those. But it may be something more basic, stemming from a group of technologists themselves. You know, they're the ones fundamentally, at least in the West. It's it's relatively independent actors here who are driving the technology stack in a particular direction. So the question of, you know, what's the technology stack that actually leads to a viable civilization, let alone a viable democracy in America, versus a civilizational stack that as it emerges, democracy gets worse and the likelihood of civilization continuing gets worse, right? So it's like, in some sense, yes, we would like to have a democratic vote on that, but it's actually a small number of people right now making design decisions about the future of the computational planetary stack, right? The planetary computational stack. And that's important to get, right? Will they be techno-humanists? Will they be techno-feudalists, 
right? You have techno autocrats, right? So there's a, we haven't even talked about China and how it has set up its internet and its smart cities, which is an incredible network of social surveillance and behavior modification, full stack, much more well-organized than ours, <laughs> but autocratic techno autocracy. We're looking more like, like a techno feudalism. This is what a book that uh, Gaffney and I are working on specifically this, you know, what is the worldview driving the technology stack in this particular direction, which is making us more dysregulated at the base of our attentional system, which is making us more prone to being weaponized by propaganda. Again, approximating us, moving us slowly towards a situation where we have AI-enabled socialization systems, period, right? Which again is either an amazing <laughs> breakthrough in education that makes many things possible that have previously been impossible for civilizations to do, or it spells the, the end of what we've known as a human, which is a being that is raised by beings like itself, as opposed to a being that is born by beings like itself and handed over to a silicon being to raise. Zach, you gave a very brief description of your vision of education, but you have a a far larger and deeper vision of what education is and can be than most of us do. I'd love to have you speak to that and also then speak into how do you see the optimization of our educational systems and and education per se as we move into the future? So, yeah, I mentioned already that like civilizations to exist have to sustain themselves and reproduce themselves, right? Like any organism. So there's a basic process of autopoiesis. And Ken writes about this. And, you know, the Santiago School of Cognitive Science kind of brings us this notion. And autopoiesis means the self-making, the self-recreating, the work that the organism does to continue being itself and to evolve as itself. As paradoxical as that is. It stays itself, but it also evolves as itself. And so in social systems, in groups of any size, in the basic human unit, to keep that thing going, be it a family or a tribe or a thing or a civilization, you have an autopoetic process. People are born, they replace the people who die. So by my broadest philosophical definition, education broadly construed uh, is social autopoiesis. It's, it's the most basic way that the social system reproduces itself because it's the transmission of the identity and skills and virtues, how to use the tools. It's a bunch of stuff that makes the next iteration of, of that social unit possible. And then often allows that next iteration to be a better version of that social unit, which is to say a more adaptive to the environment, more generative of long life and happiness of its members, like those kinds of things. So it's also a part of the way the social system learns about itself and evolves. This is John Dewey's definition of education in, in more or less no uncertain terms. Now he didn't have the, the concept of autopoiesis, but he did have Whitehead's organicism, and he did have the earliest thinking about the way that that structures of life reproduce themselves by kind of passing down these forms of consciousness. And when I read Ken and I read Dewey, 
and I read others, I start and Piaget thought this way, that in fact, in terms of cosmic evolution, education is a very interesting cosmic function. This is why Dewey looked at it with reference. Because it's a strange place in the cosmos where it can reflectively can reflectively self-evolve. <laughs> can reflectively self-evolve. The education is like this place where the cosmos gets to a a bubbling point that it can reflectively self-evolve as opposed to just self-evolve. So self-conscious evolution occurs through this modality of human education. I locate that emerging with the emergence of the human specifically. And so this gets interesting. It's clear that other animal species interact with their young in ways that allow their young to flourish. And some of those ways look like education, like the monkey showing the stick and how to get the ants out of stuff completely. So there's precedence in that. I'm not going to kind of like debate that, but it's very clear. There's some comparative psychology research done by Michael Tomasello, where he shows very clearly that the human, first of all, the human baby is a baby for a long time. <laughs> Just a very long time. It's even gestates for a very long time. And there is immediately not immediately, but often immediately, the capacity for what he calls joint attentional awareness. And this is what I referred to earlier, like me and you in reality. This is a joint attentional situation. Me, you, reality. Right? That the human can hold and sustain that with the adult human in a situation basically of parental care and joint reference to shared reality. That other animals don't have as rich a, situ a basic situation of socialization and, and education. So like very early, if you look a certain way, a kid in a high chair will be like, what are you looking at? Right. You think other animals do that, but most of them don't. And the ones who do are like small groups of pack animals and things. So like we point a human will point a human infant will follow a point. A domesticated dog will follow a point, but no wild animal will point for another animal to look at what they're pointing at. And then you get into language and other things. So my hypothesis is basically that what I'm calling education is also an emergent thing that makes us the homo sapien, that it's the capacity for a certain richness of education that allows us to be so unique in the, in the animal species as to be the position where evolution can be self-consciously evolving through educational practice. And then you have to get that educational practice isn't schools. That for most of human history, there were no schools, just period. Like for most, like laughably most, like we're, like there were not schools. Briefly, there have been schools. And now we think of education, we think of the school. And that's because of the schools. Sorry. <laughs> and the schools are a complex conversation, which gets us back in the conversation about propaganda but also about the reflective construction of educational institutions. And so the future of education, I believe it involves the end of schools, at least as the dominant modality of socialization. So there's a whole bunch of work in my second book about that, about these educational hub networks, which I believe set up a transitional infrastructure into a, to a future planetary scale educational system. Then how do we learn to socialize Zach, if we don't, do schools like we've done? How do we connect with one another and learn all those lessons? So many ways. I mean, 
like I said, for most of human history, we didn't have schools. So we've been socializing for a very long time. Uh, collaborative work is the main way that humans socialize. And then the rest that takes place in the absence of work, both of those, you know, it's, it's interesting. Like the, one of the main issues that's occurring that I'm tracking is the adolescent mental health crisis, just devastating. Some of it's what we were talking about, just basic smartphone attention dysregulation. But some of it is because schools are really irrelevant and everyone kind of senses that. And so like, this is an interesting move where you take a basic sociological category, usually applied to adults, which is this category of bullshit job. David Graeber actually made this a formal category of social analysis where there's a job you have in an institution where you get paid to do it, but you're completely fungible and the work doesn't really need to be done and will probably be done by somebody else. And no one has any consequence if you fail and whatever. And so school is basically a bullshit job, like at this point. And so adolescents sense that. And so school is actually not a great environment for socialization for them as a result of that, because they are participating together in what they feel is like a, either a competitive thing, they're competing against each other in school, which sucks, or it's some kind of weird scam. <laughs> like, are, my, are the teachers really telling me the truth? Do they really have my best interests in mind? I should compete with this kid to get a scarce scholarship to get something that's supposed to be for everybody, right? The internet has all the information in the world, but I'm still supposed to sit here and talk to this dude. So there's all of these things that make me believe that if we were to get adolescents actually working together on meaningful projects that matter to the world, you'd make a huge difference. Zach, I was a, a wilderness guide with adolescents, young people for many years. We would go out in the wilderness, long journey, six, seven, eight, 12 weeks. And obviously we didn't have phones and all of this stuff. And we learned that we, I mean, and we were in the Southern Utah wilderness where you could be hit by a blizzard or, you know, a windstorm or a flash flood or just sun. And we had to cooperate together and we had to learn trust and we had to learn honesty and we had to learn cohesion. And it sounds like those sort of initiatory experiences where it's not bullshit, it's real. In other words, if we don't get this fire going, mm -hmm. it's going to be really hard, you know? Yeah. And all we have is these sticks to do it. So let's work together and get this going on. And for things in their community that they know are problems that need to be solved because then they feel like their lives are meaningful. Yes. Because we're asking them to like postpone until they can contribute to society. And this is why you have such a strong activist culture in many of the colleges, because it's a way to feel like you're actually doing something. Because school is not where you do something. School is where you prepare to go do something. When in fact, for most of human history kids were involved in the actual doing of some things usually with the family at least you would be doing something essential for the family needed you most adolescents aren't in that position <laughs> or many <laughs> this is anyway we've kind of drifted to this point which is a broader point about what should education look like in the future if it's no longer schooling we could have situations where we have a return to things like the guild structure. We have a return to propositions like the Civilian Conservation Corps, the CCC, which emerged during the Depression, which was a massive jobs and education program that rebuilt infrastructure, gave us all the roads in the national parks and all that stuff. Thinking about educational reform in ways that don't have to do with schools, that have to do with kind of like utilizing 
the untapped potential of the next generation, which is mostly right now being exploited by attention capture technology, wanting to do something meaningful to address, for example, the meta crisis. So the near-term thing to do with education is that, is actually to galvanize quite urgently some kind of thing like the CCC or some radical thing that sweeps a large percentage of the youth into incredible new opportunity and educational learning experience. That would, cha- that would mean changing the basic fabric of their digital lives in a way that would undo a lot of the damage that's been done. And then transitioning into this distributed educational hub network that I describe in the book, which can be kind of read about there. And that eventuates into something that looks like this AI-enabled educational tutoring system, which will come. We will have to figure out how to use it. In fact, one element of, or one key dimension to education, which we haven't really spoken to so far, is the education was usually, you know, (laughs) often just thought of as accumulation of facts, which is education that's worse. But how do you see education being used to foster both virtues and psychological maturity? Yeah, so that's two of a triple. So there's like virtue, maturity, and intelligence. That's mm-hmm. right? And I would say, back to this theme I've raised a couple of times, we in our society and in our schools, schooling in particular, could be defined as focusing on intelligence, which is specifically the kind of like, abstraction of concepts and language about reality to objectify and control reality hugely important but one third (laughs) one third of it if you try to work on maturity and virtue then you have to bring the sacred back into schools and then you've just done something that modernity is not happy about (laughs) because we separated the church and the state and therefore we separated the school from the church which is a very important innovation, but it meant that it became harder and harder as the kind of like, you know, social capital of the pre-modern religious traditions was burned off as we moved deeper into modernity. It became harder and harder to have virtue and maturity instilled in the bureaucratic school systems of, let's say, a large city. Along with meaning, I might add, is part of that. Precisely. Precisely. There was, during the war years, a kind of civil religion that emerged, which provided a kind of nationalistic religion, but that has degraded. And so we're in a situation now where, yeah, we are still hypertrophying the intellect in schools. So the kids who advance through, through the schools and go to the best colleges are still the ones who basically do the best on the standardized tests and who can form their intellect to what the school requests from them. So how to create environments that instill character and virtue means having to break out of that structure of schooling that hypertrophies the intellect. And as I mentioned, find a way, and I mentioned this in my book, is one of the key themes, reinducing religiosity into the nature of how we understand educational system. So if you imagine an educational system as the autopoetic nature of the society, what if it mostly just starts focusing on passing along stuff that's not the spiritual insights of the society? And then, so then that means like you're slowly draining off into the next version of society. It becomes despiritualized by virtue of a, of a fumbling of inter, like you make a mistake in intergenerational transmission. You don't pass along the, the religious meaning making as part of the educational system. So now most adolescents who do build character and virtue, I, I would guess, 
they do it outside of school. Super my guess. Occasionally, I bet it happens and they put it in a movie. <laughs> but I think for the most part, it is lessons learned outside of school or experiences that may be something a great teacher helps you reframe in school, but really the experience was had outside of school. What's interesting about religious education, if you just like go there, that's one, that's one response of what we just need religious education, is that in some context, your whole life is available for examination. Your whole life becomes available for examination. And you move out of a bureaucratically manageable type of teacherly authority. If I can put it that way, that was like a masked way to say it. But basically, like if, if you're a teacher in a religious context where the student's whole life is available as a source of teaching and learning and, and needs to be because it's about his character, it's about his virtue, then you're giving a kind of authority over to the teachers, which is very important and needs to be done, but very hard to, let's say, quote unquote, scale, <laughs> right? Like it's hard to get that many people in a position of trust and vulnerability around the most sort of fundamental aspects of their lives. So this need for a new religion is kind of pressing. Yeah, you know, and I notice you're saying religion, you're not saying spiritual, you know? Well, I think it is spiritual, and fundamentally these are, these are spiritual teachings and spiritual practices, but there is, religiosity is about actually, I think one interesting definition of it would be a codification of symbol and codification of pedagogy. That like you, you know you move from spirituality to religion when you actually have a pedagogy when you're actually dealing with the kids. Like this is one thing I've always dealt with with like spiritual people who want to start spiritual communities. You're like, well, what do you do with the kids when you're doing X, Y, and Z practice, <laughs> right? And fill in the blank there of practice that would be inappropriate to have a two year old running around at, which is most, especially silent meditation, <laughs> let alone psychedelics or. Whatever. So this question of the codification of intergenerational pedagogy being one thing that moves you from spirituality to religion and religiosity being the need to do some formalization because you're trying to get people at different levels of development. A structure, a structure that they can grow in. A structure they can grow in. And again, now we're back to the propaganda being the evil twin of education because you're also mimetically designing a whole thing with the intention of bringing young people up and into a system of totalizing meaning making. So part of me is like, huh, let's not work on that. It's being it's being worked on. So so Roger, to your question, it is it is that we need a resurgence of innovation in religious and spiritual education. And specifically I think a near-term project that can galvanize the youth to resolve the meaning crisis and therefore the health crisis and all the other things that cascade from it. And that would look like something like the Civilian Conservation Corps but for a digital age. And if you don't know the Civilian Conservation Corps, it's, like, it's a whole story, but it's worth looking into in terms of like a very successful project that, anyway, so that's my answer, Roger. We need yeah. to, we need to get. Okay. Yeah, Zach, there's so much in what you've said, and there's obviously so many avenues we could go down and hopefully another time we'll explore some more. But, but for now, as we come to a close, I want to go back to John's question, which was, what gives you hope? But now from from the big picture you've presented to us of all the these so many challenges, 
but also the possibilities you see. Some of the things you, you, you're you seeing and you're learning about that give you hope. I think the main thing that gives me hope is how much we underestimate human capacity. Mm. Like we're actually running at a very suboptimal level, especially in terms of cooperation as a society. We're very used to cooperating through transaction, right? That's why the economy in one sense is great. I go anywhere in America, I get an identical cup of coffee from Starbucks. <laughs> and I don't need to know the guy and he does, I don't need to trust him to make sure he's going to give me the cup of coffee and argue about like how much it's worth. It's just, it's just, we just, so there's a certain form of high level coordination, but cooperation is different. And cooperation outcompetes coordination, if you can follow me there, which is to say yep. there's a lot of untapped collective intelligence that could emerge from trust-based networks that could outcompete people who are only doing things for economic incentive or self-interest. So it appears now that like the bad guys <laughs> are winning, the ones who just want to build a tech stack that exploits people for profit by just regulating their nervous system, making them susceptible to attention capture and then eventually propaganda. But in fact, they're not cooperating. They're competing and attempting to coordinate, looking out for self-interest. If a less empowered group was actually cooperating with a network of trust, with a higher order principle worldview. My hypothesis is that they would outcompete this group and the defectors would join and we could flip and actually build a tech stack that would create a new civilization. So the, my, the argument here is that there's a, there's a latent distributed collective intelligence that is just sitting there, which America used to use it's worth noting, like we weren't always as propagandized as we are now. And there were ways that we set up market dynamics mm. that allowed us to, to come together as a whole greater than the sum of its parts. Mm. So that's a little bit of a one way to answer it is that there's a, we are underemployed across the board. Like how, think about how many underemployed people there are. Yeah. Yeah. Ima imagine all the underemployed Somehow the economic system flipped and they were all empowered to do things that were relevant to resolving the meta crisis, but adjacent to their interests, right? Like with a basic income. I'm just saying, it's just, there's, there's so much squandered human potential. That's very powerful. Thank you. Yeah. So that's one source of hope. And, and such a key idea there. Yeah. Such, such a key idea, Zach, that our, capacities are underdeveloped and underutilized in ways we may not even appreciate. And it, as I look at it more and more, it's, look, it's looking like what we call normality is actually a form of unrecognized coll collective developmental arrest. Correct. That's what I'm saying. So then, and that we have multiple. There's a bridgeable delta there. And a lot of it hinges on the algorithms. Like, yeah. you know, so <laughs> it's just worth noting that, that there's... Yeah. There's a small number of algorithms that are dysregulating and affecting a large number of brains. If those were to change from attention capture to attention preserving, imagine it was like, hey, man, you've been looking at this for 15 minutes. It's not good for you. <laughs> <laughs> As opposed to 
dropping you into more. So you can flip the, the algorithm from attention capture to attention preserving. You can flip the algorithm from anger or fear or lust-inducing stimuli to like high-order conceptual stimuli. Like there's all kinds of ways that you can make it so that these things could become good for us to interact with. Mm. These things we love to interact because we've been made addicted to them could be actually good for us to interact with. So that's another cause for hope is that there's actually just a couple of technical things, at least from my naive perspective, <laughs> where if the government could actually regulate these industries from a public health perspective, they would at least change these algorithms to be attention preserving, which is not a political issue. We just make it so that we're not messing up kids at the level of the brainstem so they can't pay attention because they watch TikTok for four hours a day. So anyway. That's, that's what I got. That's what I got for hope. <laughs> Zach, you got a lot. You've given us a lot. You've given us a lot to to attend to and and talk about high level attention and up leveling. Uh, you've given us enormous gifts. So deep appreciation for you and the work you're doing. And uh, I certainly encourage all our listeners to look up your, you and your work and to immerse yourself in it. I think you'll find it as incredibly stimulating and elevating as I have. Zach, thank you so much. Thank you, Roger. Thank you. This was transformational. It's what we're here to do. I think you really delivered, brother. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure, guys. Today's episode was brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation Podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation Team.